podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Good evening and welcome to episode 10 of Sugar and Silk, brought to you exclusively by Ace Podcast Nation. Brought to you also by myself, Ben Doughty. And myself, Michael Silkalajade Jr. What's up, Michael? Oh, everything's kind of cool. It's like, you know, everything's cooling out and chilling out, getting closer to Christmas and the holidays, end of the year. Uh, how's everything over there? I know you're well, over in kind of, the here for a minute, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of cold, you know, because, I mean, this time last week we were doing this show, it was three in the afternoon where I was. Mm-hmm. It was nice and warm out on the terrace of Mike Ayala's in-laws in a nice part of San Antonio. And here I am back in, you know, darkest South London. It's cold, it's icy, you know, uh, the transport's all kind of skewed. But, you know, the, the important thing is I'm here. Um, uh, there's not a lot. Did you, did you taste any cuisine that you haven't tasted before? Yes. What did I have? Go, let, let's talk about that since it has an awful lot of relevance of boxing because, um, yeah, you know what? What did I have that I had before? I had Mexican food that was on another level, Tex-Mex stuff. That was. It's not like I haven't had Mexican food before, but this stuff was better. The first restaurant yeah. we went to yeah. called Mia, Mia Tierra. There was some nice stuff. Uh, what did I have? I had Chicago-style pizza, uh, which is you're probably familiar with. It. It's deeper, yeah. you know, with thick crust. That was kind of cool. Had a good... Um, Italian sausage sandwich. What else did I have? Plenty of Tex-Mex breakfast uh, type things. <laughs> to be honest, it made me kind of long for a fry-up with, with good old-fashioned toast instead of tortillas. But not that yeah. I, not like I dislike it. Um, I'm sure there was... And you know what else I had? I don't know if you're familiar with this, Silk. It was called a root beer freeze. A root beer float. It's like basically a... It's like a milkshake. Really cold. Yeah. that tastes root beer. Um, yeah. A root maybe, beer float. Yeah, I definitely had that. That's... That's the whole, like with the ice cream floating on the top and it bubbling over and the whole thing. Right? Yeah, and I also had um, shaved ice, also known as a Respa, or um, yeah. I think there's another name for them as well. I can't quite remember what that is at the minute. But, but yeah, that was, that was also kind of cool. So uh, aside from that, it was, it was really uh, good to, to you know, connect with the reality of the Ayala story that I've been writing. Yeah. How, and how do you feel about that? Let me ask you, because... I mean, that's such a heartfelt, that's such a deep story that that it means a lot to boxing people to know exactly what went on because Tony Ayala's life was, you know, his, his career was, he was just on the way to what everyone would think would be the next superstar in boxing. Yeah. And for, for the wheels to fall off the wagon like that, it was really amazing. And so quick it happened too. Even when he came back and he fought Yuri Boy Campus, and it was so many years later, I expected to see the same El Torito as, yeah. as you know, that went in. So to, so to see him like that, it was just like, wow, it was mind-boggling. Did you dig into any of that side of his life? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, what I'm aware of is that the, the, the life of the whole family, the Ayala family, was very, um, it was full of conflict and drama and toxicity to, mm-hmm. to a great degree, to be honest with you. And it's something that, you know, when you, when, when you get a guy like Mike Ayala, who's, who's such a nice guy intrinsically to his core, is a decent, you know, uh, intelligent human being, yes. you become aware of the, con- the fact he's not really had any peace because, because of the tumultuous events that since, for as long as he can remember since childhood, you know. Yeah. But um, 
and I did I did get a sense of what the family still meant in that um you know in in that city you know and and how much of a of a kind of a favorite son Mike still is you know because they're all and you know you know how passionate the the, the Hispanics are about boxing you know what I mean there's um they have a different level of uh, I could talk boxing with with Latinos, Puerto Ricans, and Mexicans, and and yeah. Chicanos all day because yeah. they have the, the, it. Just seems to be an entry. They seem to have an entry level of knowledge and kind mm -hmm. of um, taste for it. You know what I mean? So, yes. but um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it did. It, it was a watershed to, to actually to walk some of those streets and go to all those places. Which I mean, the gym, for instance, the, the old Zazamora Street gym mm -hmm. in Tony's heyday, in Tony Ayala Jr.'s heyday. 80s, 1980s heyday, they were based at the San Fernando Boxing Club, yes. which it'd go to the new San Fernando Boxing Club, but it's not the same venue. Uh, but the gym that uh, that Tony Ayala Sr. ran in later years, certainly when Tony came out from the long sentence, was at Zazamora Street. And thankfully, um, the facade, the, the, the exterior is still perfectly preserved and looks fantastic, mm -hmm. you know. But, um, mm -hmm. but sadly, it is no longer... A boxing gym. Uh, I'll, I'll explain in the book how the family lost the gym. I mean, that's another bone of contention. And sure. I don't want to give much away. But yeah. it, it's now a male bathhouse. I, I called it a gay sauna. And Mike's wife said, I don't think that's the technical term. But it's basically, it's a place, I guess, where gay guys go to hook up. Which is, I, I don't know whether I want to say whether it's a shame or not. I mean, I, I think it's a shame just because it's not a boxing gym. There's no homophobia intended there. So yeah, I just think it's, I just think Tony Ayala Senior would be spinning in his grave in any case. Yeah, and, from, uh, going from one extreme to the other, I guess. I guess so. Although some people, I mean, some people have accused boxing per se of being somewhat of a homoerotic culture, and oh, no doubt there is not. no doubt there is elements of that. Do you know what I mean? Because I think yeah. there's John Conte once said, "You you know about the, the the love or connection you feel with a guy you've had a hard fight with. You know, mm -hmm. the, you know that post fight." glow whether you won or lost perhaps mm -hmm. when you've shared something that was truly mm -hmm. valuable and yeah, pushed each yeah. other to your limits but, but think of your fights that were like that perhaps even the Aaron Barker fight even though mm -hmm. it, it only went a certain amount of rounds yeah John Conte described it although it, it was a ghosted autobiography <clears> by um what was his name Peter Bett I believe it was who ghosted uh, John Conte's autobiography but in the book at least he, he said it's almost a sexual feeling he was talking about the way he embraced Jorge Amada after he won that vacant WBC light heavyweight title in, um, I believe it was October 1974. Okay, so do, do you think there's, I mean, I tend to think with boxes when you've had, I mean, there's so many things that go on that have been said beforehand and, and that build up into the, the feelings of the fight, uh, the emotions that go along with the physicality of the fight. Then you have the physical fight, then there's the release. Uh, uh, of you know the physicality, your your emotions, you put everything into the fight, and you're just kind of like done. But it, it's more like the loser has been conquered. Um, so so you know you've lost, you've been conquered, and you acknowledge a man for his being able to defeat you. And and you know if you're a good fighter, that's no easy task. You're gonna put up the hell of a fight, hardest fight you can put up with. The man beat you. Okay, respect, peace. I'll go my own way. You go your own way. Maybe we'll meet again down the road. I surely hope so. That kind of thing. There's that kind of respect. I wouldn't say um, uh, homoeroticism, though, um, only because, like, it's violent. Like, the intent of everything is absolutely violent. There's no, the, uh, 
for as many fighters as I've known, there's never been a sexual side to it. I mean, I don't know everybody. Everyone has their own kink in their thing, but yeah. it's very much about making a man submit by beating him to the ground, and there's nothing sexual about it. It's absolute, like, it, it is a, a, a contained violence. Yeah. You're and, talking about being conquered. Yeah. They say that when he lost to Sugar Ray Leonard in September 1981, that Tommy Hearns went into isolation for three days. Have you yeah. ever taken a loss that badly? But so I'll just say hi to Natalie, my lovely lady, because um, if I don't, <laughs> it's, it's not good form to ignore her. Usually I'll let these comments fly and just keep talking to you, but there are there is a pecking order of importance. There is here. a pecking order. <laughs> um, I was going to say, have you ever taken a defeat sufficiently badly that, that, that your next several days or even weeks or months were, were, were disordered or, or shrouded in darkness as a result of that? Yeah, absolutely. My very first loss to Frank Tate was really, really dark for me. And um, yeah, I mean, I stayed in my apartment. I didn't, the friends came over. I didn't want to see him. I, I just like the lights were out and I was just you know, I was so frustrated and so angry, angry at myself, angry at people around me, angry at my people who are supposed to be looking out for the my betterment. You know what I mean? There's just so much, so many things that go around your mind and go through your mind when something like that happens on that stage. And of course, in front of so many people or millions of people that see it happen, you come back to your, you know, the apartment that you live in, the building, and you know, as many people wanted to put a sign up and say, hey, congratulations, I saw you fight on NBC and you won the world yeah. title. There's just as many that look at you now and they kind of they don't know what to say. They're unsure. Yeah. You know, it's just it's just it's a lot of discomfort. You know, people recognize you now and they recognize you. They talk to you differently when you step back into the gym. You know, the fighters understand, but you still know that a fighter is thinking, well, he's weaker now. He lost now. He's not the same individual as he was. You just don't carry the same luster. Do you also remember when you won, particularly if you were on TV, which is something you can relate to and I can't. Do you remember that? Do you remember that compulsion to get in the gym, even though you don't need to train Monday because yeah, yeah. because you've got a week off or you've got however long off or your training's even set like three days off in your early career? Do you yeah, remember yeah. that compulsion to go to walk into the gym just to be able to say, yeah. "Hey, man." Oh, absolutely. You go there for it. Even like the next day, you're back in the gym and yeah. you're walking around and you're talking, people are talking to you. And it's like this whole, yeah, the camaraderie and the, and the friendliness and the, the sharing of an experience. But you also want that pat on the back. That's what you fight for. Yeah. You know what I mean, that acknowledgement from other fighters. Um, even today, when I get it, you know, when I saw Mike, uh, Michael Nunn for the first time, ever in my life. You know what I mean? You look for that acknowledgement that like, wow, we shared a thing, even though we didn't, didn't share the ring, we shared an experience in a way. And and many other guys who I've, who I've never fought or like, I, I recently posted a picture of myself with Rocky Graziano and, yeah, and, and, yeah, <laughs> and uh, Jake LaMotta. And I, I remember distinctly taking that picture and just the fact they knew I was a fighter automatically got me like, got me in and that was cool and it was all right i was a modern day fight i was in their times but i still shared that experience with them and and so there was that warmth that acknowledgement that that's really really cool 
Yeah, I mean, you, you're up there and, you, and your name, beside, I mean, okay, Lamotta and Graziano are giants from a previous era, but you want to talk about Michael Nunn and Iran Barclay, your name mm-hmm. is beside theirs in history. You know, I mean, one of them you fought, the other one, you, mm-hmm. were, you were one of the leading 160 pounders in that era along with him, you know, so you, yeah. you were one of that number and you're part of that fraternity and you can't be disqualified from it, which that must be. In a way, but at the same time, I mean, it is nice being a part of that. But again, there's definite separation between champion and contender, and and I don't think I could take that away from them because in that period of time to become a champion within that period of middleweights as well is really says a lot. Now I know a lot of the uh, about about a fighter's abilities and the circumstances surrounding them, and it does take a a real proficient, intelligent manager in order to help a fighter get there as well but ultimately it comes down to the guy fighting in the ring and, and the two guys fighting in the ring have to get the job done and you know what i mean and and i had two opportunities at it i didn't get it done and and you, you know you live with it and, I, and i'm okay with that but i know that um i i know that there's the story behind it. it. It allows it to be digestible for me. You know what I mean? No matter what anyone else says or does or anything else, it's digestible. It's understandable to me. So I'm like, okay, I can live with it. That I didn't win the world title. What is interesting on that account is that you are quite serious, jokes aside, of not being referred to as champ. I, I call any of my boxing friends of your stature champ. I call Mike Ayala champ, although, you know, yeah. he didn't win a world title either. He had, he had three attempts um, and fell yeah. shy. Um, yeah. But having said that, he was a three-time national amateur champ, which uh, yeah. that's, that's enough for me. But yeah. when I when I called you champ a few years ago, now you politely said, "Do me a favor and and, and don't call me champ because I was close but no cigar." And yeah. uh, you know, you're kind of sort of likable demeanor aside, you're actually quite serious about that, aren't you? That you don't want that look tag. Yeah. You don't. You're not accepting it. Yeah, I really do. I mean, what we're in there for is the world title. That's what we went. That's what. We, Every single from day one, that's what it was about, attaining the world title. I mean, I'd won like a Pacific Northwest title, like WBC Intercontinental, Canadian title, you know, just things like that. But they don't mean anything because they aren't. I can't say they don't mean anything because there are a lot of good fighters that have won those titles as well, but they don't mean what. They're not my. They're not what we get into the game for. We get in to be the world champion, to be the you know the best fighter at that time, and um, and it just was something that didn't happen. And and I, I accept that. I understand that. And and I would feel actually really kind of foolish if someone were to introduce me as a champ, and I, and before I even get a chance to say something, they're onto and they're and they're filling out like my resume, and I'm kind of like, no, I I wasn't champion, but. <laughs> Well, do you know, one thing I really can't handle is this Vinny Pazienza five-time world champion thing because it's just complete <laughs> and utter libelous nonsense. And it was his birthday the other day, I believe. So obviously you get yeah. people going over the Times Five and anybody who tagged him on Twitter, it's the Times Five because that's his handle on Twitter. But mm-hmm. I'm sorry with that. It's just bollocks. And, you know, if yeah. we're going to sign off on that crap, Michael. I yeah. mean, listen, this WBA lightweight champion, sorry, IBF lightweight champion and WBA junior middleweight champion. Those are fantastic achievements. Yes, absolutely. You know, e- e- even in that era when perhaps had it been low 10 years early, it would have been harder still. But, you know, if we're going to sign off on that kind of nonsense and that, that kind of, you know, willful inflation, we may as well forget about any semblance of a merit-based, you know, competitive sport yeah. and just let fighters write their own legacies as fraudulently as possible. Yeah. I-, I cannot deal with yeah. it. 
I think what happens now, yeah, everyone's sort of like, I know I fought for the um, WAA, World Athletic Association title, which I won. It was a 15-round fight. I fought a guy over in Super Fiji Outdoor Stadium, Sakurai Bay. Yeah. Like Big do. winning record and the whole thing. It was an incredible experience. And I won. I knocked him out in the 11th round. And and they were saying, like, you're world champion. I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> Marvin Hagler is, you know. Um, do you know come on. And, and But there are people, Michael, who win a title like that. You and know, they'll claim it as a, yeah. That slender credibility. And they will say, and they won't just say a world champion, which would be, you know, which would be bad enough. They'll say the world champion, which that yeah. would really try. Yeah, you know, yeah, when yeah. somebody won, like when you get a domestic level fighter over here who won an IBO title, which is, yeah. you know, I mean, um, I'm talking about good fighters, and sometimes mm -hmm. they were British champion too, and they should talk about that, and they should talk about that for the rest of their lives. That would be that would be fine with me, but when they say about this was the night I won the world title, or you know, yeah. um, I just I have a major problem with it. I know in yeah. the past I've fallen out with people in the industry over it. I've accused of being jealous because I never won anything. Yeah, you know, I never turned over. And, um, you know, I, I, yeah. as you know, it's not the case. That is not true. Yeah. It's coming from a higher point there, you know. Yeah. No, I know where you're coming from. Well, let me ask you then, Ben. What do you want to see for boxing in the new year? What's the one thing you would in, like to see for boxing? Well, well, I'd like to see I'd like to see Spence versus Crawford for a start before it becomes too much of a kind of Mayweather-Pacquiao kind of decrepit, antiquated situation where the matchup just doesn't have the relevance on a cutting edge kind of juice that it that it would still have now. Now, you know, Errol Spence had another car crash, by the way. I don't know if you heard about yeah, that. Yeah, I did hear about that. He didn't get hurt sound, this time. It doesn't sound as spectacular as the other one. Yeah. Oh uh, you know, but uh, he was saying that he's intending to fight at some point. It said April, May or June. I mean, that's mm -hmm. a little bit of a, you know, he's left mm -hmm. a bit of a three-month window there for that possibility. And he says, hopefully he can run back the negotiations for Crawford. He said, it's a fight that I very much want, so hopefully we can still do that. It's a fight he wants to have next year. I would like to see it, you know, and I would, I would like to see Jaron Ennis get a shot at one or two, or, you know, or, or both of them, as far as the, the welterweight vision is concerned. I absolutely hope we see the Garcia versus, Javonta, you know, Ryan Garcia, Javonta Davis fight, which looks to be nailed on for April. D Davis, yeah. as you know, is fighting on 7th of January against a guy who's no joke, but he's, uh, you know, but it's someone he's fancied to get past. That's Jose Luis Garcia, coincidentally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ryan said he's not going to have a tune-up. He's just going to go straight with that thing, which is actually quite a bit of an activity to be dealing with, to go in, in with somebody of Davis's calibre. So, but I, I hope that one sticks. I hope it stays. What else well, why like do you think it? he wouldn't? Why do you think he would turn that fight down, the 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 tune-up fight? I don't know. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you'd think you'd you would fancy a run before you went in with an opponent of Davis's caliber. He seems to think that that he's better off just waiting. I mean, I, I know some people might say, you know, you don't want to get a cut or you don't want to get some crazy thing happen where you know you get injured. Mm -hmm. But um, how, how do you read it? Do you see it as a, as a lack of confidence and, and, a, and a desire to, to like cash out kind of logic? Or, yeah, or... you know, well, it certainly can't, it certainly doesn't say I'm confident. That's for sure. No, it, no I don't think it says I'm confident that I'm going to beat uh, Tank and I don't need a tune-up fight. It, but it doesn't, it also doesn't say a tune-up fight is necessarily good for me either. Uh, what, what could happen in a tune-up fight is you end up getting 
tuned up in a sense, maybe not losing, but not looking, doing things to hurt the gate. Like the gate is perfect right now. That's and true. I mean, I mean Sugar, <clears throat> Leonard took, Sugar Ray Leonard took Ayab Kaluli for a tune-up for Tommy Hearns. He'd already signed to fight Hearns September yeah. 16th, and he took on Kaluli in um, June yeah, um, in 1981, which, I mean, that shows... Like a, a a real level of of, of elan and, and confidence yes. yeah, that you can't absolutely. expect from mere mortals. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what else? Um, I think of sometimes when you think of fight, when you talk about mega mega fights, blockbuster fights, and you think of uninspiring performances before that particular fight, I go mm -hmm. to back to Bobby Chez versus Amanda Holyfield, uh, <laughs> which was the real deal's fight immediately prior to shocking the world. Yeah, Mike Tyson defeat. Nobody and, thought Evander was going to beat Mike Tyson after his fight with Bobby Chez. It was just like that was just so mind-boggling. <laughs> yeah, so maybe it has a, maybe it works as a kind of a, of a kind of bluff or throwing people off the scent sometimes, you know, because because the motivation level is different, the styles yeah, are different, you know, whatever. Yeah, the the same old thing. For me, I kind of like what I'd like to see is. I mean, I'm sure it'll never happen, but in boxing itself in general is like this consolidation of boxing. Um, and it's kind of like harder than uniting the states over here way back then. Like boxing is kind of like the epitome of free enterprise. You know yeah. what I mean? And and it's like anyone can be a promoter, anyone could be a manager, anyone could be a fighter, and they are. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's a free market. And it's a blessing and it's a curse. So we have to put up with a lot of stuff too, but it's, you know, that's one of the things I like to see with boxing, like consolidate in some way. So, so we can get things, you know, again, pipe dream, but get things done for fighters, more fighters, even on the lower levels could make more money. Um, it, it's almost like more can be done um, when everyone comes together as one, then, can be done separately when everyone's, you know, I mean, so many different people could eat and and do and do things. I understand that, but when you consolidate and you get one strong organization or organizational body behind it that's really down for the fighters, I mean, I, it hasn't been done yet, and I think it can do so much more. For instance, like they have, you know, uh, professional football over here, American football, and when they were the uh, the NFC, uh, NFL, and the AFL. They were divided, but they made so much more money when they consolidated. They came together and they created a Super Bowl and leagues and the whole thing. And it just ended. It's just more competition, and competition in especially in a free enterprise market is always good. I think so, um, because this is the thing. Other people always justify it on the basis that boxing is a business. I had a conversation um, earlier today with an Australian boxing manager who's who does quite well in the Antipodes. He's quite well connected there, and you know he he understands the business side of it, you know, well enough. But he was he was talking about Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua and Alexander Usyk. He was also talking about uh, Conor Ben and, and Chris Eubank Jr. And he was saying those were the big fights in the UK. The two biggest fights by far were Fury versus Joshua. And Eubank Jr. versus Conor Ben, if they can still put that one together. He said mm -hmm. they'll fill stadiums and break all pay-per-view records. And I said, well, that's a shame, really, because I said, to me, it's an example of, a, of an ignorant audience who don't know what they're watching. And that's why they're so champing at the bit for those those kind of matchups. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then he, consolidating what he'd said, he, he asked, 
who really wants to see Usyk versus uh, Fury? And I said, well, I would much rather see that fight than yeah. Joshua versus Fury. And yeah. this is the trouble we have with, with with an uneducated audience. He said, yeah, but, you know, he said, I look at it different to you. You look at it as a sport, which I don't, by the way. I don't look at it as a sport at all. I'm too clued up for that. And I, I think it's impossible to look at it as a sport, given what we've got. I can't see it that way. But, um, but what I don't see in other sports, Michael, I don't see losers getting progressed and moving on as opposed mm-hmm. to winners. That, that, it may be a business, and I get the fact that it's a, the, the risk-reward equation is what ultimately drives it, and that's fair enough but understandable. But when you talk about Joshua being the bigger draw than Usyk, even though Usyk's beaten him twice, and he's not exactly... It's not as if Usyk is uncharismatic or, or and he's not, you know, uh, good yeah. to watch, you know. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, th- th- Josh Warrington got beat the other week um, by that guy, the... The Mexican guy whose name has already eluded me, uh, but he lost his IBF featherweight title. And already um, it's been said, Eddie Hearn has said he's looking to, to put Warrington in with the win of, of Wood versus Lara, you know. Whereas this is where we've got to now. Back in the day, right, when, when Ali got his jaw broke by Ken Norton, mm-hmm. Dick Sadler came to visit him in hospital and he basically said, Don't worry about it, Ali, we're still going to put you against George, you know, because Dick Sadler was George Foreman's manager trainer right he said we're still gonna put the fight together this is just a little hiccup he said can't no athlete make a five million dollars unless he fights you ali he says we're just gonna you know push forward aside and ali talking through his broken jaw that was wired together was so no he said i want to fight norton next and he said no he said a real champ don't duck nobody i've got to put this right this is supposedly according to ali's autobiography and um Sadler said to him, will you quit that Boy Scout shit? He said, you know, there's no need to fight Norton again. Now, back then, there was still that kind of meritorious logic that governed things. And as you will know, and history will show, Ali mm-hmm. went back in with Norton and beat him. Close split decision yeah. um, in, the, in the rematch. Yeah. Then he went back in with Joe Fraser as well, yes. mind you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let that sink in. You know, people yeah. lose. <laughs> the uh-huh. And then he fought... Then he and, and then I believe he fought Rudy Lovers just for good measure. Uh-huh. Um, that's Ryan Garcia's chewing up, okay. And um, <laughs> and then he and then he went in with Foreman, and you know the rest. Um, yeah. But so back then it was still that kind of logic that, that that seems to govern other sports and govern boxing back then, where they said, well, you know, we're not going to buy the Ali Foreman fight until you, you know, you establish, you reestablish your momentum, having just lost you know, to, to Kenny Norton. Whereas, <laughs> you know full well today, you know for a fact. But mm-hmm. it, it can't be a fact, obviously. But you know, as sure as Tuesday follows Monday, that they actually would do what Sadler was proposing. They'd put Ali, they'd have put Ali in with Foreman next, mm-hmm. and, and they wouldn't have worried about the fact that Kenny Norton had just beaten him because because Norton doesn't draw, relatively. What I Drew? heard the grapevine somewhere. Yes, I agree one hundred percent. And just to touch on what you were saying, they've been kicking some things about uh, kicking around um, rumors of. Tyson versus Fury. Oh, uh, what? Oh, yeah, an exhibition between Mike Tyson and Tyson Fury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 anybody who pays for that, Michael, is an idiot. Because <laughs> what? Why would you do that? And if you know, yeah. listen. Suppose we were hanging out, and somebody said, "Oh, suppose I came to New York to see you," and yeah. somebody said at the gym a few blocks down the road. Mike Tyson and, and Tyson Fury were sparring and messing around. You know, I'm sure we'd go down there and have a look. If someone yeah, if someone yeah, yeah. invited us down there, we'd say that that might be quite yeah. cool. Yeah. But if you take it any more seriously than that, and that you, you you would do more than cross the street for it, and you'd actually shell yeah. out hard-earned money for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
what could you possibly hope to glean from it? It's, I mean, the yeah. Mike Tyson, Roy Jones thing, I thought it was harmless, but it yeah. wasn't something that interested me. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, it didn't interest me either. And I think that's promoters doing what promoters do. People just looking for money, uh, looking to, you know, to really just uh, skim from the pockets of the paying public. And they don't know any better. They don't know what an ex if an exhibition, if you're going to be boxing somebody, they don't know. I'm going to pull my exhibition means I'm going to pull my punches or I'm not going to try to win or I'm not going to try to knock you out or hit you with a real. So if, if, if the, if you take knockout off the table, what do you, what exactly are you watching? What is the purpose of, of watching it? Well, exactly. Because the bases aren't loaded and that is the magic of a fight. You, do, you, do you remember, I'll get to that question, by the way, Sorry, I know I see Ace Podcast Nation is participating quite a lot this week, so I will look at some of those questions. But do you remember ever watching a big fight, either with, if you were there live, and I know you went to some blockbusters in the 80s, or if you watched it on closed circuit, maybe, or even TV at home, do you remember feeling a real nervous feeling in the pit of your stomach because you empathised with what they were going through because you were so excited about the fight that was about to unfold and being a fighter yourself and having been in that position, you started to empathise with how they were feeling as they, as they did the ring walk. Do you, ever, do you ever remember feeling half scared to death waiting for Leonard Hearns to enter the ring? Uh, no, I, I do remember like just the excitement, like energetic because it was finally going to happen. Yeah. It's, that's one thing. Uh, this, uh, if, if I'm answering the if I'm answering the right question, I'm not quite sure. Uh, I, I do believe, like going into the fight, I felt a little bit apprehensive for Sugar Ray because I knew, you know, the hitman was a sniper, and yeah, and there was no denial that he could punch. And 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 even still, I mean, I was young in my boxing experience, but I knew that, you know, what uh, Sugar Ray did with the Yub Kalule wasn't the kind of thing I didn't know enough to know that means absolutely nothing towards him fighting Tommy Hearns because Sugar Ray has problems with southpaws or whatever, whatever it may be. Styles make fights as we all know, timing, speed, power, whatever it is, resiliency, just even how you wake up that day determines and, how you're going to fight that. Yes. Day. And also how seriously you're taking a threat. Uh, I mean, I, I would think that Sugar Ray with Kalule, uh, I, I find it really hard to believe when fighters say I didn't take him seriously. I find that really hard to believe. I don't suggest he didn't take Kalula seriously. I'm sure he yeah. thought he had his hands full, but it's yeah. not the same as, you know, when you, like Ali said, um, when he talked about his, his truly great performances and then he spoke yeah. about some of his more kind of, not routine fights, but some of the yeah. other fights. Mm -hmm. And he said, I couldn't possibly train as hard for them as they trained for me. He said, because every time, it was their for them. It was like the foreman or the first listen fight every sure, time sure. Sure. when they fought me. That's how seriously yeah. they did it. Yeah. He said I couldn't train that way for for, for yeah. the Morgan guys in the seventies. Yeah. I, I remember saying with some of the guys that I fought, like I mentally couldn't get up for them, and, and I'm like, that shows. It's not being disingenuous. It's sort of like creating a, a an excuse for a lack of performance. You know what I mean? Like, because the people, everyone thinks, yeah, you were supposed to just go in there and just wash this guy away. Something didn't happen. Why didn't that happen? And you, the first and the closest thing to you is like, ah, I just, my mind wasn't in. I was thinking about the champ. Or I'm used to fighting up at this stage, and now I'm fighting down at this stage. And I'm, yeah. that's not, that's not the art that is boxing. That's not, that's not the spirit of a boxer. That we're at that point, you're really just making it as a fighter who's done it. 
I'm making an excuse for a bad performance and one that's going to go down easy. And most people are going to be like, hey, he's probably right. You know what I mean? <laughs> he's probably right. He's fighting a guy ranked number 25 in the world or not ranked at all. And, you know, he's used to fighting like guys in the top 10 or, or a champ or yeah. whatever it is. And it's, it's, um, it doesn't really do it justice. To, I think fighters at that point have to be honest and be like, well, this guy really does have something that I didn't prepare for. Or didn't, yeah. you know what I mean? That kind of. Sure. Uh, Simon has asked us, are there any specific small adjustments that boxing can make as a sport to make sure fighters get paid more at the lower end? You know, talking about that situation where it's only the people at the top of the pyramid who are yeah. making, you know, um, telephone numbers mm -hmm. and, and everybody else is struggling and starving down at the, at yeah. the grassroots end. For yeah. me, I don't suppose it's a simple fix, but what I think is, you have to create more of a commercial product at the lower end because back in the, in, certainly in Britain, back in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and even the 70s and the 80s, small hall grassroots boxing was a bigger thing. It had an organic audience that were regulars at these shows and they, it was, it, they made a point of going to the shows whether they knew one of the fighters or not. I mean, obviously, they got interested in the local fighters and the local rivalries and all the rest of it. But these days, the only way professional boxing in the UK is marketed at the non-TV level, is that the fighter, the A-side, the ticket seller, the, the guy who's going to win, has to sell, you know, a hundred of his nearest and dearest friends' tickets for the show in order to get on the bill, essentially, in order to make it worth the promoter's while. Mm. The promoters don't do a massive amount of promotion sometimes, but they make sure the guys have shifted those tickets. So if you've yeah. got like 10 fights on and you've got 10 A-sides, they've all sold a hundred tickets each or some of them sell more than that because some of them are popular and they're good at that marketing or it's it's part of their culture usually that they come from a, a certain working class environment. They tend to be Caucasian as well and they might be connected to a football team, you know, which has seen Josh Warrington take to another level, that kind of football fan base thing. But the point is that so long as they've sold the tickets, they will get on. But what that tends to create is pockets of supporters clubs where they've only come to see one boxer and they couldn't give a damn about the rest of the card. And why mm. would they when it's only a guy going to be beating a journeyman like what they've just witnessed, whether they're aware of that or not. So they yeah. tend to get tanked up and drunk and whatever or coked up. Yeah. And then they go and watch, they, they'll wait in the bar, maybe outside or the bar in the venue where you can't even watch the boxing from at New York Hall, for instance. Yeah. Uh, the York Hall being our kind of blue horizon in the east end of London, right? Um, <laughs> and then they will leave after their man has been on and go wherever they go, you know. Yeah. Well, the thing is, you know, Ben, like um, the job of a matchmaker, I mean, you hire a matchmaker, you pay a matchmaker, and there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to understand what's oil, what's water. These two, you know, are going to conflict and it's going to be a good fight and it's an entertaining fight and people are going to come back to the fights and enjoy them. And, and instead they put on these one-sided cards that, you know, the, the, the guys in the red corner, Everyone, the athletic commission, the judges, the everybody, whoever is the red corner, you know that's the home favorite. The blue corner, you know that's you know what I mean. So you're you, they kind of like the red or blue. That's going to pretty much tell you who's the favorite, and all the favorites are going to be in the red corner, for instance. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can pick the whole card at a pro show for, for the most part. You can, you yeah, can yeah, pick yeah. Absolutely. Yes, you know. yeah. But I do remember um, when I when I first started fighting, and it took me a long time where I can get to the point where as I could like live off the money that I was able to 
generate some fighting. I remember when I first fought Curtis Parker, and he was world rated at the time. He was like, I think he was maybe like number 10, 11 in the world, 9, 10, 11, somewhere in there. And um, I was at that point 15 and 0, 16 and 0, and I came over from Canada and I fought in Atlantic City and it was a televised, nationally televised fight, not on the major networks, but it was nationally televised. It was also televised in Canada and I'd made like 5K on that. And, and believe me, it wasn't because of the times. Like in those days, they were making good money and, and 5K for a 10-round fight and it's nationally televised is not... Peanuts. Amount and 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 then I fought James Harrow Green after that, and it was pretty much the same thing, maybe even less. And and um, it it isn't until it starts to get undeniable that you're an attraction that you're able to start doing things. Um, but they definitely take advantage of fighters at uh, at the early stages of their career, and it's almost like nobody teaches you how you have to, everyone has to go through the same burner. You know what I mean? Everyone has to be burned before they learn and they get better. And, and there's, there doesn't seem to be any for boxes. There never seems to be any, this is the way this guy did it. This is the way you yeah. should do it. And you know what I mean? Let's do it that way. There isn't that it's everyone learns from their own experience. And that's one of the unfortunate things for fighters. It's like people have already done it listen to that experience, take what they've done and build upon that. Uh, it, it, would, it would help. It would help the game immensely and it would make, it would make things more lucrative for the fighters for as long as you're in the ring. You have very limited time to make that kind of money and you can do so much better. Well, do, do you believe that the game needs reform from the bottom to the top to create a better model and a more fan-friendly model which is better for both sides, either the spectators and the participants, yeah. to the point where we can actually create a thriving uh, industry which yeah. allows as many fighters who really deserve it to, to make life-changing money yeah. and good money. Exactly. I mean, look, like, fighting, like, every other sport, soccer, football, basketball, baseball, whatever it is, they are kind of like constructs. Like, they're, they're, they, they say they're fighting, but they're not fighting. But, Boxing is real fighting and MMA is real fighting. You know what I mean? And, and, and so golf, skating, whatever it is, you fight, it's energy. It's a, it's a real thing, but it's not, but it isn't the fight per se, like the real legitimate fight. And so I don't understand why that itself can't be like own it. As, as a as a fighter, own it, own that, own that you. At boxing should own that it does something different, and that it is the fight, and that it is the real ultimate sport. George Foreman called it a shot of scotch compared to all the other sports, which he described as watered down boxing. Yeah, yeah, you you can certainly say that. I mean, they have, you know, I mean, there's just certain things that they have a series of laws that, like boxing does, but they're. Uh, a lot more polite. And believe me, I don't take anything away from them. They're extremely talented the way in which they can execute and what they can do. And 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 even like sports like football, these heavy impact sports where, you know, they, they get C, CTE as well and they get, you know, their knees taken yeah. up and all sorts of damages. I'm not taking it away from that, but I'm just saying this is, you know, mano a mano, one man against the other. And, and it's just, not only in a fight, but in the gym, it's this consistent beatdown that happens, and it's unlike anything else. And I, I don't know. Uh, boxing has to find a way for the fighter to benefit to his f 
fullest uh, potential, and that's not happening yet. I, I do know, like I said, I think I said to you before, Tommy Hearns is starting up a league. There's been some sort of things I've heard around before. Um, isn't isn't there one out in England called the IB IB uh, IFL? Well, IFL is a, is a YouTube channel. Oh, it is okay. Headed up by okay. headed up by Cody and Cassius, and you know it's very much the new casual audience and the clickbait. Yeah. I mean, I'm not I'm not knocking it. I think they've done tremendously well, yeah. and I remember them when they first started. So you know, but that's what IFL is. I mean, it's it's the sort of thing that people on my page would mostly say that then that they're not usually into, but they see it's been a development of the modern game and the new fan base. You know, mm. I, I'm, but you and me essentially are supposed to be the opposite of IFL TV in terms of our approach and where we're coming from. But mm. but, but but I suspect you were talking about what, like a a professional boxers association, which which looks to. Yeah, to, I, I, I really I really think the fighters uh, can um, monetize their abilities much better than they have. I think that. Um, I don't know. I, I I have some ideas, and I'm not at liberty to say right now. But I just I just feel like um, boxers are the ultimate warriors. Fighters are the ultimate warriors, and and all the things that guys in the NFL, Major League Soccer, or international soccer, whatever it is, all the things that these guys enjoy, fighters too can enjoy. But what fighters have to do is to come together. They have to consolidate. Now that part is the hardest part, because why would, why would, you know, why would uh, Tyson Fury want to share money and profit with some other guy that's still a four-round fighter, for instance, and unknown? And why should he be giving any of his money into this man's betterment or for the betterment of it? But. So there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion. Are, that be are you suggesting something along the lines of a union? I don't know. I mean, a union is going to consolidate everything, but I don't know. The union would have to still have that that like you you're free to join the union. You're not. It's not a forced yeah. thing. You know what I mean? And yeah. you know, you try your luck, and if you don't. If the union isn't for you, you can leave it, and the union, you know, isn't going to come down on you. There, there's so many. Yeah, unions make it a lot harder because everyone has to think along the same lines. And as human beings, you know, that's not going to happen, especially with fighters. I mean, come on, you. Every single fighter that gets in the ring, everyone's style is different. Never mind, never mind their opinion. They do something different. Sure. Um. What? It, although I feel the story is arguably getting a little played out it still hasn't resolved itself so i'd like to talk briefly about conor ben yes. the update since i was away in the states last week was that initially he made a very kind of vindicated sort of victory speech which essentially said nothing he basically said my team have proven my innocence and for all you doubters and haters i forgive you but i won't forget even though there was no proof there was literally there was literally nothing in support of his of his kind of victory speech he yes. just said my team have proved my innocence but fuck all of those of you who didn't believe in me, but you'll soon see the truth will soon come out. And that was the end of it. And then I've since heard, and everybody else has heard, uh, who follows the story, that his team have submitted a 270-page document to the WBC who are conducting their own independent investigation purely for WBC purposes, 
which essentially means whether they will rank Conor Ben going forward or not, like they did previously before this controversy with the two failed drug tests. It is not um, related to the UCAD investigation, which will be more relevant to the British Boxing Board of Control, even mm. when he decides to reapply for a license with the British Boxing Board of Control. But, uh, but it, in any case, Michael, it's a 270-page document they have submitted, which the WBC certainly are working their way through as they look to try and ascertain his culpability or innocence, which he says has already been proven. Um, do, how do you feel about something as, as voluminous as a 270-page document to prove yeah. one's innocence or something um, like that? Yeah. Well, I think what is generally done in those terms is they try to overwhelm your opposition. And, you know, so you're going to hand in all these volumes of records and, and these guys are not going to want to read it. They're going to be like, this is BS. And yeah. so they're, they're, they're all going to come to some sort of like agreement that, okay, so he's going to get his thing back, but he has to pay a fine, some sort of moderation. They're going to meet somewhere in the middle. The, these are just like, um, these are just terms and policies that these guys put in place that they don't make sense to the better for the betterment of the sport, for the safety of the fighters. But when, when fighters themselves, can go ahead and give and green light that kind of behavior, then what can you do? It's like they're in. So like Connor Ben's people or whoever else is is green lighting this, um, that and they're real fighters, you know, you're you're saying it's so you're really just giving it the thumbs up and saying, yeah, it's okay to use these performance enhancers. And, it's and just, what's the point? What's the point of having drug testing if yeah. we People don't take action on the relatively rare. Well, I say rare. It's not that rare, is it? People getting popped and busted or coming up dirty. But mm -hmm. what is the point in having that procedure if you're not going to make sanctions against the people who fail the tests? Exactly. What's the reason? You know, we we could argue all day about why it happened, but yeah. the end of the day, it has happened twice. Not not once, but twice. With Connor, twice. Yeah, he failed two drug tests: one in July and one in September. And you know what, Michael? I had thought previously they were both VADA tests that he failed. Yeah. I think I read something literally in the last couple of days where I think one of them may have been part of the WBC's clean program. One of them, because I think perhaps yeah. they do test. Yeah. I thought VADA did the testing for the WBC clean program, but mm -hmm. I thought I saw some report a couple of days ago that said he failed one for VADA and one for the WBC. So yeah. that could be misinformation. They could yeah. both be VADA tests, but they were definitely in July and September. Uh -huh. they, and nobody knew about the, the the first failed drug test. It only came to a light after the second fail, much nearer to the to the intended yeah. fight date. And it was the Daily Mail over here, you know, a popular tabloid newspaper that leaked it. Yeah. And it was after that that the border control were galvanised into action or forced into some kind of stance. Mm -hmm. And as you know, they decided that they couldn't sanction the fight in the interest of boxing, even though both teams were aware of the one failed test. Mm -hmm. um, and they both agreed to go on. Eubank was was agreeing to go on with the fight, with the uh, with the levy of a fine. You know that Ben would have to pay. He'd have to give him another three hundred grand um, from his purse in order to to sweeten Eubank and make him feel you know comfortable with the arrangement. You know, so um, but the board said no. You're not fighting under our jurisdiction. Yeah. In, you know, in, in this country, yeah. uh, it was an option. <laughs> in theory, that they could get another sanctioning authority to sanction the fight it's still in England. 
because mm-hmm. that has happened before. You know, most famously when David Hay fought Derek Chisora under Luxembourg sanctioning back in 2012. But I think given the amount of time that they had to, to orchestrate that, coupled with Eddie Hearn's reluctance to go against the border control if he could help it, obviously the fight was scrapped. And, they, you know, I think Matrim probably lost somewhere in the region of a million pounds, Eddie Hearn said. I've got no reason to doubt him. Uh, based on the fact that, I mean, obviously they lost more than that in terms of revenue, but they literally lost a million pounds they'd sunk into the fight, if that makes sense. Um, oh, who did? Who did? Eddie Hearn? Yeah, uh, Matt Trim, I guess. And and Eddie Hearn is, um, he's uh, supportive of Conor Ben? He's, he is. He, he says, you know, you wait till you see what comes out. I think people are going to be surprised. We believe he's innocent. And yeah, he's been supportive of him all the way through, yeah. you know. But the the thing that people are making a, an issue out of, rightly so, is that when Big Baby Miller, Jarrell Miller, got popped for, I think, I'm trying to remember, it, it was some long ped name that was like loads of numbers and letters. And <laughs> then um, and then there was also human growth hormone was an EPO. So he he had quite a lot of, you know, pharmaceutical stuff going on, Baby Miller. Yeah. When um, he was protesting his innocence, Eddie Hearn was saying, shut up, Vada are the gold standard. You know, <laughs> you know if, they, if you fail yeah. a Vada, you are you are yeah. you are juicing and you are cheating, yeah. and that yeah. is that. But, yeah. but people say what they need to say, don't they? In, in the given yeah. scenario, there's, exactly. there's a whole bunch of Eddie Hearn funny videos where they've cut contradictions up of what he said yeah. then, and what he said, uh-huh. you know, about this opponent being a viable opponent or not. I think wasn't opponent. it wasn't it Don King that said, "Oh, oh no, said, Bob Arum, Bob Arum." Oh, he said, "Yeah, I'm lying today. Or, I was lying said, yesterday, yesterday. But I'm telling Someone the truth today." They said that's not what you said yesterday about whatever it was, and he said yesterday I was lying. Today I'm telling the truth, you know, which is that was that will, that quote will outlive Bob by some distance, you know. Um, yeah. And I suppose essentially it sums up the subculture, which you know, with that is boxing, that is professional boxing, you know. So um, I, I yeah. think um, Conor Ben certainly. It's unpoliced. Boxing is virtually, it, it is literally unpoliced. As much as we say we have these boards to take care of these rules and that, it's absolutely like it's the wild, wild west still. It really Person, is. I think it really does need breaking from the from the top to the bottom and starting again. I think, yeah. I mean, Bob Aram actually said, talking about Aram, he was the one who said he hoped that the sanctioning bodies got so crazy that there were 10 world titles all vying for primacy at the same time. Mm-hmm. And when they asked him why he wanted that, he said, because then they will destroy themselves. He said, the more the more the merrier, because they will destroy themselves mm-hmm. and they will lose their kind of leverage that they have. Uh-huh. I would be happy to see, you know, the whole model fall so we could actually rise up again and build something else, something that was more, you know, merit-based. So I get the fact that, you know, it got, it can't be. You you shouldn't have to fight killers, you know, and a murderer's row of of contenders every every year or every every three months, whatever. Yeah. I get but the fact. Not, that but, but if that's a lineup, then why not? I don't, I don't I don't understand why. Well, I mean, obviously for the for the love of money, that's why it wouldn't be done. But I I would think if you know if a guy's really you listen, you fought, you won the title. Maybe you get one fight to, you know, at least in the 80s and, and back then they do that. You get one fight, you pick a guy you want to fight who's kind of a little soft and what have you. And then you have to fight the number one contender. And after that, you just keep going back. You fight contenders. You don't do... You know what? Maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe that is the... Perhaps I've been softened by years of this risk-reward kind of logic. You know, I always hark back. When you talk about that situation, I always hark back to 
the 70s, the late 70s, early 1980s in this country and, and the world champions we had in boxing mm-hmm. in that era and mm-hmm. the alacrity with which they lost those titles because of the yeah. toughness of the challenges they had to accommodate. Exactly. I'll give an example. You had John H. Stracy. In uh-huh. order to win the title, he had to go to Mexico City to, to, to fight the great Jose Napoles yes. and fantastically he beat him. And um, then he had a defence against Hedgeman Lewis, which was, was a tough contender. That was no joke. Mm-hmm. And then he had to fight Carlos Palomino and he, and he yeah. got beat. You know, So that, that's yeah. one example. Let's do yeah. another one. Alan Minter had to go out to the States to fight Vito Antifermo, which yeah. right, he wasn't a great fighter, Vito, but it was a tough, he was an undisputed champion, he was a very tough guy. Minter yes. then had to accommodate Antifermo immediately in a rematch back in London. Then mm-hmm. he had to fight number one contender Marvin Hagler. So that was him. Yeah. That was his title gone. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then you had Morris Hope, who had, had to win his title in Italy. He had to accommodate Rocky Mattioli in a rematch. And then he had, yeah. after, after a couple more defenses, he had to accommodate Wilfred Benitez in yeah. Las Vegas. He got knocked down yeah. because yeah. he couldn't hold to that title, couldn't yeah. swerve him. It didn't mm-hmm. happen. Then. Finally, you had um, an, another example was Jim Watt. He had a relatively weak um, opponent for his for his type for his vacant title wing effort because Duran had, had vacated. Sorry, not Duran. But I didn't know Duran had vacated the WBC title. Yeah. I think Duran was on the street lightweight champion. He mm-hmm. went up. So Duran fought Alfredo Pichuala for the vacant title. But after that, he had to defend against Howard Davis and then. As well, mm-hmm. and then Sean O'Grady, who was a yeah, very Sean good fighter, yeah. then he lost the title to Alexis Arguello. So, when yes. you look at the quality of guys that people were losing to, those four champions I mentioned from, from Britain, yes. they lost to Palomino, Hagler, Benitez, and Arguello. Yeah, that wouldn't happen in a million years today because <laughs> so many titles around to make it, yeah. it's not there anymore. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. And I, and I will never accept this argument that, well, as long as fighters can make more money and, you know, and enjoy their retirement and enjoy their children and grandkids, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. fine with it. I, I'm yeah. not fine with you it. You don't be a not- fighter, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's- yeah, no, absolutely, 100%. If, if, you're not, if you're not down to, like, do what fighters are supposed to do and what they've been doing since the beginning of time, and I just don't think there's any room in the sport for you. It's It's... Like, we continue to shoot ourselves in the foot with actions like that. I'm glad you say that, because here's the mm-hmm. thing. Sometimes people will say to me, yeah, but, you know, you're looking at it from a fan perspective and all the rest of it. Um, you know, they try to dismiss it on the grounds that they know better because mm-hmm. because they're a promoter or whatever. But the fact mm-hmm. that pe- people like yourself and people like Iceman John Scully have been mm-hmm. up to your eyeballs in the reality of this game mm-hmm. uh, 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 at the highest level, you know, for relatively big bucks... And you still have what I regard to be as the only integrity-based, integrity-based value base that there mm-hmm. is on it. So I'm glad that you would say that. And <laughs> Thanks. Maybe that's the reason that. why we didn't make that, that uh, you know, Sugar Ray money. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe, maybe so. But then I don't know. I mean, I think Sugar Ray Leonard even said, you know, a while ago when I when yeah. I interviewed him the first time, he said that he did believe that things had gone somewhat skewed because it was no longer about mano mano. Yeah. Said the leg- you against me and what mm-hmm. when i put it to him that he was fighting for for mega bucks back then as well he said he was he said but there's so much money on the table today and yeah. he said back then in his era it was maybe there might be a deal breaker of a hundred thousand here or a hundred or a yeah. million dollars there even he said yeah, but yeah. because of the astronomical amounts of money involved today like you know you t- we can yeah. close on this but terence crawford supposedly got paid 10 million dollars by that blk prime yeah new- the, uh, the other week for wow. defending against 
David Avenition. Now, you were telling me that you've heard that it only it did less than 25,000 pay-per-view buys. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't make any sense. So maybe the Harold Maps is making his uh yeah his come back. <laughs> it's that it sounds like a Harold Smith level of investment, does it not, Michael? Where, where does <laughs> yeah. that 10 million who are BLK Prime and where did that 10 million come from? Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting question. And that's the thing with boxing, is like you can get anybody in it. like it's just a free market. Anybody can come in if you've got the money and you talk to an athletic commission is basically it's a wrap. You know, if you show you have the funds to do it and the fighters purses are secure, you can do it. And uh and I mean, and that's the beauty of boxing. At the same time, it's its curse because it never gets out of that and it never gets above that. But I was just gonna say to you, because I, I know we're gonna part really soon. Um so, like, for the coming year, what we have coming up, what would you want to focus on for our show more than anything? Would it be to, like, what, what do you think people would like to see more, more interviews with fighters? I guess we'd have to ask the crowd. One thing I, I think that we need to do is get this streamed live on my page and mm -hmm. and, and, and yours as well. Yeah, yeah. But definitely on mine because yeah. at the minute, we're coping with the fact people form habits. If me and you yes. got gone live on my page tonight, and it yeah. would have also happened on yours automatically, yeah, with bigger audience right now because people mm -hmm. would just tune into it straight away. We still mm -hmm. need to, 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 to uh, in order to have a, yeah. a bigger live audience to actually ask what they would yeah. rather see more of. We're I think with. people would definitely like to see more special guests. You've been talking about, we've been speaking about Donnie Lalonde, Bobby Ches. Yeah, we can get him with a spoon. He's always, he's always up for that kind of thing, and he's always. Yeah. He's always a great contribution. Yeah, I mean, uh, so many great stories. I mean, I, I'm thinking like like Alex Ramos. Um, yeah, you know, uh, even people that aren't well known champions, but they are champions, but they've had experiences that would. I like that you know, Jerry Page, the one who the the, the 1984 Olympic gold medalist who was yeah yeah most obscure of the whole bunch. I mean that that would be interesting. Exactly. You know, yeah, we Buster Douglas on here. Buster Douglas would be incredible. We'll we'll definitely do that. Um, let's see, Buster Douglas, uh, John David Jackson Jr., junior yep. middleweight champ. He was he was great. He was so talented. He did so well as an amateur, and transitioned really well into the professionals. And and uh, he has a very interesting story. And and you know, he wants he once marketed himself as a Southpaw consultant. I remember. He did say at one point that he was a Southpaw consultant for people who had yeah. pressing engagements against lefties yeah. coming up imminently. He was a Southpaw consultant. You know, and I think, didn't I see him, wasn't he the trainer in the corner of um, Shields, Clarissa Shields now? Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah, he trains Clarissa Shields. Yeah, yeah. so that's a, that's, a, that's a great conversation point. And, um, and uh, yeah, there's just, there's just so many guys out there that I want to speak to that I – Really, you know, I, I think that we could run a show pretty much twice or three times a week if we can hit all these train, uh, all these fighters. Let's start getting busy on that. We have one more okay. show before 2022 is no more, so we'll have a talk about that in the interim. Okay. And we will get more uh, faces, you know, the great and good yeah. of yesteryear and today. Yeah, yeah. and today fighters especially, yes, absolutely. I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be a good year. This is, you know what I mean? It's our warm-up. We're still shadow boxing yeah. in the back. They haven't brought us out to the ring yet. Even no. our, well, well, I mean, Michael Nunn was 
was pretty huge. That, that's that's yeah. huge. Yeah, that's exactly. We've, we've, had, I mean, we've had great guests already. And so we've, I think we've only had two, but there were Michael Nunn and Mike Ayala. They were pretty yeah. good. Oh my um, God. Pretty good guests right there. I mean, we did, yeah. we did discuss the need to get people who are not called Michael on the show. Because yes, at the exactly. minute, I've been totally outnumbered by Michaels. But we can work on that. Um, I feel your vision. It seems like we're in a good place with this. Um, I'm always wary of closing where you're concerned, Michael, because just as I do it, you say, actually, can we talk about this Hungarian featherweight who was actually popular? <laughs> I'm not going to do any actually. No, not this time. But in this case, it looks like the coast is clear. So thank you for joining us once again. I've been Ben Doughty. He's been The Silk. You can follow us again next week, brought to you exclusively by Ace Podcast Nation. Please get involved with them on Patreon. And in the meantime, be lucky. Keep punching. Sports Social Podcast Network.